guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. In Francis Schaeffer's classic book, Art and the Bible, he wrote, Is the creative part of our life committed to Christ? Christ is the Lord of our whole life, and the Christian life should produce not only truth, flaming truth, but also beauty. He argued that art is important to the Christian life because it is a work of creativity and God is the creator. Moreover, since man is created in the image of God, he has the capacity to create, and that makes his works of art meaningful. My guest on today's show argues that we ought to take the works of art and film seriously and view them as opportunities to experience our creator. His name is Richard Goodwin, and we discussed his new book, Seeing is Believing. Richard Vance Goodwin is a film expert and adjunct assistant professor of theology at Fuller Theological Seminary. If you enjoyed our conversation and you would like to get a copy of Richard's book, Seeing is Believing, just click the link in my show notes and you can get a copy there from IVP. IVP is offering my listeners 30% off through October 3rd whenever you use code FILTER at checkout. This offer is only available through October 3rd, so make sure you pick up your copy soon. And remember to use code FILTER when you check out to get 30% off. Before we jump into this episode, let me encourage you to subscribe. If you have not yet already, subscribe to uh, FILTER wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get all future episodes directly on your homepage. Also, subscribe to our email list so that anytime we release a new episode or have a new article that comes out, you can get that in your inbox whenever it comes out. Also, if you were helped by this episode or any of our content, it would greatly help us if you would leave the show a rating and review or share the show with your friends. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and also write a review on Apple Podcasts. Whenever you take these simple steps, it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this conversation that I got to have with Richard Goodwin. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Kia ora. Greetings from New Zealand. It's good to be here, Aaron. Well, glad to have you with us uh, all the way from New Zealand. You know, whenever I was preparing for this and looking at the time differences and, and seeing how far you were ahead of me. So for our listeners, we're recording this on, for me, it is about 4 p.m. on a Thursday. For you, it's around 9 a.m. on Friday. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, and so th- this is my first time interviewing someone in the future. Yeah, yeah no, the future's okay. Um, it's okay, people. You can chill out. It's, it's all right. For Everything's good so far. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, great to talk to you. I think you are, uh, we've had some overseas guests on the show, but you're our first from New Zealand. So uh, it's great to have you here. You know, I don't know very much about New Zealand other than what I've seen in The Lord of the Rings and yeah. Flight of the Concords. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, and, sure, uh, sure. Yeah. So um, I am from New Zealand and live in a place called Cambridge, which is, um, you know, speaking of Lord of the Rings, is is Shire country. So if you go about uh, thirty minutes from here, for those that are watching on video that direction, um, then uh, you end up in you, there's a a movie set where the Shire. The, the Shire movie set there and you can go visit it and so a lot of the Lord of the Rings nerds um, from around the world come here and, and go visit that as a bit of a pilgrimage so yeah, uh, the, the land that I'm in the te- territory uh, is very like it's the rolling green hills that you associate with um, with Frodo and Bilbo Baggins and wow. uh, yeah I'm, I grew up here and then um, I'm married to Hilly um, she herself is from the US but we met married here and live here, obviously. Have two boys, five and ten. Uh, we did live in um, Pasadena in, the, in California for a few years, and there I was studying at Fuller Seminary. Uh, I did a, That was a master's degree. I did a doctorate through Otago University, which is a New Zealand university in theology mm-hmm. and movies. And um, I 
uh, both uh, adjunct professor at Fuller Seminary, um, teaching online, and my main gig is um, academic director at Pathways College of Bible and Mission here in New Zealand. Great. And so you, your expertise, your advanced degrees are in uh, theology and movies. So you are uh, a, a scholar in the intersection between theology, but then, you know, film criticism and art. And so what drew you to uh, put your career in that direction and to make this, uh, make this your thing? Yeah, I think I've always been interested in the intersection between faith and culture. And if I imagine um, my sort of theological interests as Russian dolls, then you have, you know, the big doll is, is faith and culture. Mm-hmm. And then inside that, you've got faith and arts. And inside that, you've got um, faith and, and film, or faith and pop culture, maybe. And then inside that, faith and film. Um, and so that really just comes from my experience of being a, you know, a contemporary uh, believer living in the Western world where we are um, living and breathing pop culture. And we sort of have our feet very much in that world. But at the same time, um, we're called to follow Christ. And that creates sorts of like tensions and questions and um, for me, that's just always been an interesting, compelling space. And I think specifically for me, when I was at college and um, undergrad, I was studying uh, film studies or media studies and was watching a lot of movies. I was you know, required to watch a lot of movies that were um, edgy and, and, um, and, you know, classic films, festival films, foreign films. Um, and they were fascinating. They were often movies that, you know, weren't particularly sanitary. Um, and, you know, growing up in a in sort of youth group, I'd, I'd, you know, heard, you know, we should basically, when it comes to talking about media, we should just be consuming this and not consuming that, you know, this is what's okay and what's not. Um, and I found that these, a lot of these films that were perhaps, but would be looked down upon by um, folk in my youth group or my church, uh, were nevertheless extremely powerful and um, seemed to have something to say. And so I think that sort of tension, you know, of saying, okay, there's something interesting going on here in pop culture or lots of interesting things going on that we should be able to engage with as believers. Um, yeah, I think that was just um, a challenge for me in my young adult years. And that was probably the, the beginning of, of that um, journey. And so in terms of why I've ended up there. It's just because it's, that's what I find compelling in my own, um, my own faith. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And, and I can identify with that. And I think that a lot of people can, you know, for those who have been privileged to be able to pursue what their hearts is passionate about. Um, yeah, I completely uh, understand, you know, I'm, uh, I'm someone who loves movies, but I'm not a like artsy movie guy. And to me, the pinnacle of art and movies is Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> yeah. I haven't you know, seen it yet, but everyone tells me it's great. It, yeah, it's, it, you know, it instantly jumped into my probably top five, maybe. Um, yeah, cool. But no, I, I, like to, I like to hope that I have a, a good taste in, in movies and can yeah. see the difference between, like, you know, a, a film that is truly a piece of art and then one that's, you know, just about entertainment. Um, yeah. But, uh, but, but still, you know, I, I, I'm not the best like film <laughs> critic out there. And so well, in, in your book, you're writing about the revelation of God in film. Mm. And so what do you mean by that? Yeah, sure. For, for those of us who, say- you know, are just kind of your average, average Joe when yeah. it comes to watching movies. Yeah. Well, let me just say before I answer that question that, um, there's no shame in, um, you know, loving uh, Top Gun Maverick or Marvel films or um, or Star Wars or any of that stuff. Um, there should be know. a little bit of shame with Marvel films. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I've got, own, I've got my own sort of tastes and then they don't always lean that way. But um, I think the what I find really interesting and compelling about this whole area of sort of theology and pop culture generally is um is that 
it's popular. <laughs> you know, mm. it's like it's what people are watching and it's what people are consuming and it's what people find compelling. And so I kind of feel like we as the church should be there and engaging with it and and t- talking about it and digging around and seeing what is it about this that is um, is resonating with people. So um, I have to confess, too, that um, my book does lean a little bit towards fairly artsy, elitist movies, but that wasn't by design. Um, in a perfect world, they would there would be a good mix of different kinds of films, but um, there there are some kind of complex reasons why the movies I focused on were a little bit on the yeah a little on the artsier side, um, but um, and I won't go into those right away unless you want to. But um, but no, that just to say that to affirm you and say hey if that's your taste then um, that's all good. And um, when it comes to your the question you asked about revelation through film. Um, you know, I think that that's potentially something that could happen in any film, regardless of what your tastes are. But what I mean by this is, um, you know, revelation is God revealing God's self to us. And I remember my first um, class, literally my first class in the first couple of lectures of my first class at Fuller Seminary as a master's student um, was uh, on systematic theology one with uh, Professor Linda Peacor. And uh, she started with Revelation. That was what we started talking about. And it probably took me a good couple of hours before I realized we weren't talking about the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we're talking about the theological concept. So, you know, I started out um, uh, not knowing a lot about Revelation. But, yeah, Revelation is God revealing God's self to us. And that's really the answer to how we know anything about God. How do we know anything about God? Revelation. God reveals who God is to us, and um, there are different kinds of revelation. So one way that um, particularly Protestant theologians have sort of sliced it is that they've said that there's special revelation and there's general revelation. And um, special revelation is uh, the, uh, well, most um, uh, primarily the person of Jesus Christ. It's if we want to know who God is, um, we want to understand or um, have some knowledge of God, then we primarily get that through the person of Jesus. And in a kind of um, indirect way, the scriptures, because the scriptures are um, the story of Jesus. They are the witness to Jesus. So um, we we consider them part of special revelation too. Um, but that's not the only way that we can know something about who God is. Um, people may know something about God without scripture, um, without knowing anything about Jesus. Um, and we see examples of this, um, a couple of really kind of clear examples are in the book of Acts, where Paul, um, in Acts 14, and then in Acts 17, he's engaging with pagans, people who don't know the the Hebrew scriptures. Um, now, it's interesting, up until that point in the book of Acts, Paul, um, he, whenever he's preaching to people, he's usually preaching to a Jewish audience, so he refers to their scriptures but then when he starts talking to the, the pagans, you know, people in, um, outside that, the um, Jewish diaspora, um, mm-hmm. then he doesn't appeal to scriptures. Uh, he doesn't appeal to that because that is not a form of revelation that they would recognize or acknowledge at this stage. Yeah. So instead he appeals to what theologians sometimes call general revelation. So in, um, in Acts 14, he says, you know, look around you, basically. He says, God gives you crops, he gives you rain, he fills your hearts with joy. Um, And so revelation, we can learn something about God through just nature and life itself. Um, And that's what theologians have called general revelation. And then it may be even more relevant to our purposes in the conversation about film is in Acts 17, um, Paul is giving a a talk um, to a bunch of really educated people from Athens and uh, he, again, he doesn't appeal to the scriptures initially. He ap- appeals and quotes their own poets. Yeah. Um, he says, we are his offspring, and in him we live and move and have our being. And those are quotations from a couple of Greek poets, um, Aratus and Epimenides. Interestingly, too, their po- those poems that he quotes are poems written about Zeus. But Paul is taking... Um, parts of that and sort of saying, okay, maybe not the whole poem, maybe maybe not all of it is correct. It's directed um, towards a wrong, the wrong God or a false God, but 
but there are elements here that are true and we can take and and he actually uses that and and so this example again where there's some sort of true revelation or true knowledge of god that is being intuited by these pagan poets and and amazingly their words have some of their words have actually become um part of special revelation part of scripture so um that's particularly relevant because when it comes to film um i'm arguing and i'm not the first to argue this i'm following very much on the in the footsteps of rob johnston um from fuller um, who has argued, you know, that um, we can experience revelation. Um, we can learn something about who God is. God may um, be present in some special way to us through movies. Mm-hmm. Because we look at movies in the same way that Paul used the art of, uh, of those Greeks at the time. Yeah, you know, he, took, I, I, he took their poetry, yeah. which would be an yeah. art form, and so we consider... The visual arts, um, just like music, and among the visual arts, the uh, the, the moving images of film, yeah. as an art form that can be used to to show something about God. Yeah, and and more generally, it's that the spirit of God can use anything. You know, we see in in the Book of Numbers, um, God speaks through a donkey. Um, Karl Barth. Um, famous theologian said, you know, um, God can speak through a dead dog if he wants to. Um, and he's primarily sought to speak through the person of Jesus Christ. But then there are these other ways that God speaks. And rather than um, putting God in a box and sort of saying, you know, unless it's from the Bible, then there's nothing to learn here about God or any knowledge that someone claims to have about God is invalid. Um, instead, we can be open to the possibility that people might infer and intuit um, truth from these sort of um, quote-unquote sort of secular sources because the Spirit of God can be uh, revealing through any of these things, including movies, yeah. Yeah. So if someone were listening to what you're saying and they were somewhat skeptical, they said, you know, I understand your your, um, reference to Paul's use of a Greek poem, but we know that the portion of that poem was true because Paul quoted it and now we have it in special revelation. Mm. And so if they said to you, how can we watch movies, whether they be an art film or a Marvel movie and Mm. know what pieces of it are telling us something that is true? Yeah. Um, I guess there's a couple of things I want to say there. One is that, um, we need discernment. Um, and Paul obviously showed discernment. Um, he was obviously open to the possibility that God might reveal something to him through or, or speak some kind of truth through um, these these secular poems, if you like, or pagan mm-hmm. poems. Um, but he had to discern, you know, and there were things that he would take away and, and from it and say that's good and true and other things that he would say I don't agree with that. Um, and so I think we just we are engaged in the same activity all the time. Um, when we engage with culture, we have to discern and and then when we, and it's not just about discerning truth, it's, it's sort of saying, um, you know, I guess the sort of second part of my answer is that the kinds of, the kind of revelation that I'm primarily focused on in this book are, are moments where people really feel God speaking. So even more than just, um, you know, intellectually picking through a film and saying, well, this bit was good and true and this part is not, um, actually these moments where we feel arrested um, we feel captivated. We feel somehow um, moved, and it's um, another word might be transcendence—an experience of kind of transcendence. Now, these I don't think are necessarily common experiences, um, and they don't just happen with film. But I think it's possible that we can have these kind of very profound moments where um, we can't always put them into words, but um, they're not easy to articulate sometimes. But they can be ways in which God is speaking to us or just present to us or um, real to us in a way that that kind of goes beyond our normal mundane experience. Um, but to return to your, um, the, your question uh, about discernment, it is something I address in my book and it's, it's an important part because, um, yeah, we are, when we're looking through uh, culture and sifting through movies and whatever other aspects of culture we want to talk about, we do have to exercise a lot of um, discernment. And uh, a key part of that discernment is the special revelation of Scripture um, mm-hmm. and 
even more importantly, I would say, um, the person of Jesus Christ. Um, so our our number one criterion for discerning is, does this accord with what we know of Jesus? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And I think that it's it's also something that can be discerned well if we do it with others. Uh, assuming, assuming it's others who are also knowing the scriptures, endeavoring to grow in the scriptures, filled with the Holy Spirit as we do, uh, then, then, then I can, I, I find that that really helps too, especially whenever you are evaluating something like art. Cause I think you, you just drew a distinction that, that I think is really helpful, um, between the intellectual evaluation and sort of the more transcendent or experiential evaluation. And I know, at least with myself, I tend to be more of a heady person. It helps me to discern and, and, and untangle that emotional evaluation in conversation with others. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And again, um, when I talk about the, you know, our criteria for discernment in my book, um, then, yeah, absolutely. I, I draw on um, you know, what's sometimes called the Wesleyan quadrilateral which are um, the, you know, four sources of, um, of revelation and how we can um, discern um, truth. And, and so we have scripture, we have um, tradition, reason, and experience. Um, and I'd say tradition, I think, I, I, I should know this off the top of my head, but I think from memory, um, I, I include a, a, an amended version of this Wesleyan quadrilateral that's, um, and it was from Rob Johnson, who I mentioned earlier. And I think that includes community in that. But certainly something like tradition is part of our community, um, you yeah. know, both historically and the people that we're gathered in, in our churches and so on. So, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. And so, uh, so once again, to circle back to that point that I thought was really good, because whenever I'm thinking of evaluating uh the, the the revelation of god in a movie because and we talked about this before we started recording you know so i'm my my thing is apologetics and so i'm much mm. more I, I i immediately go to like the kind of philosophical standpoint and so mm. for me you know it tends to be just an intellectual exercise of the like what were they saying you know whether it be in yeah. propositions or in just presentations of images mm. um Whereas what you're talking about is something that is more, uh, that is more experiential. And so what you're talking about is how, not just how a director can, uh, express something that may be true about God, but how even inadvertently God could work through a, um, a, a film to show us something about himself, to touch our hearts, inspire us, convict us or else. Exactly. Yeah, you're hitting the nail on the head there because um, generally when theologians and even, you know, pastor preachers and so on, when they um, want to engage with movies, they tend to go at it um, in a, a in, yeah, a kind of a propositional way, um, looking at the plot and what the, the message is, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, now, there's nothing wrong with that. That's important, in fact, um, because most movies are narratives and there are sort of propositional aspects to that. Um, so movies do express, um, yeah, often express a worldview, although, you know, often people might interpret that all differently. But, you know, so there's a lot of value in that. But um, I do feel like it's a little bit one-sided because for anyone who's ever sat in a cinema or even in our lounge, um, watching a movie and it, and it has resonated and spoken to you in a way that seems to go beyond just ordinary experience. And you might even start reaching for kind of religious, spiritual, uh, theological language to describe it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and that I would say could be moments where, uh, moments of revelation where God is, is speaking to you. Um, then, just boiling that down to a message or a moral doesn't really do it justice because often what it is that really makes those experiences powerful is that the affective or the emotional flavor or dimension of it. Um, you know, you, you might, most people could probably relate to having seen a film that really moved them, whether we want to say that's God or whether that was just a powerful 
emotional experience. But regardless, a movie might have moved somebody, but then, um, but then to to go beyond that and then um, say, you know, well, the the moral of this story is, you know, we should forgive each other and kind of just boil it down to that. It feels too reductive. And what um, what I want to do in this book or what I've tried to do in this book is um, focus on images and emotion, um, not because narrative and, and the, the sort of propositional content and so on of a film is not important. It is. But just to sort of balance things out and sort of say, actually, image and the way a film is crafted, the aesthetics, and then therefore also the kind of emotions that they invite are actually an important part of the the um, theological and religious meaning of of film. Um, and it's yeah. just something that we don't generally do. I think we're most theologians. I'm like you, Aaron. I mean, I'm. I'm heady, you know, I'm a kind of a thinker and I've learned over time to sort of not just think my way to God, but feel my way to God as well. But, you know, my, probably my first instincts is, is sort of the intellectual approach. And, um, that's what I've done in this book, but it's a sort of an intellectual approach to trying to make sense of this other stuff, this more affective, emotional kind of dimension of film watching. That's great. Yeah. And I think, so that just highlights how, any discerning Christian, whenever we're approaching uh, a piece of art in uh, a, a movie, other visual art, music, or so on, it's something we have to approach uh, with our with our whole self and not just analyzing it like we're a brain on a stick. Yeah. Um, because like you said, I, I think it was a good way to put it, if you just walk away from a movie and say, okay, well, they were just making this statement and make it just a very dry intellectual exercise. Well, let's say it was a good statement and, and something that's worthwhile and that we should accept. Well, then, if that's all it's about, then it makes the art really, uh, art as art, redundant and unnecessary, if that's all that it was about. But right. art is taking, ideally, what is true and good and then adding in the beauty. And yeah. so it makes what is true and good in those intellectual propositions become something that speak to our whole person because God made us with reason and minds, but he also made us with hearts and with imagination. I think that's why the apologetics and work of C.S. Lewis is so popular. He was, exactly. uh, yeah, some people called him the romantic rationalist. Yeah, exactly. He described himself as a romantic theologian, which is, um, he said is, um, you know, being, um, thinking theologically about, uh, romance, but not romance in the sense of like falling in love necessarily, mm -hmm. but about, um, uh, feeling and tapping into feeling. And I think, yeah, yeah it is really important. Um, there's a literary cr critic called Clint Brooks who, um, described, you know, boiling, a. a piece of art or literature or whatever it is down to just sort of a, a moral or message is that the heresy of paraphrase that when it comes to art when we paraphrase it when we boil it down to just sort of a statement or a moral that we've sort of we haven't done it justice and he called it you know heresy it's like we haven't really done it justice and so um yeah i think that kind of impulse which i think is quite common amongst christian um people in Christian engagement with film, that impulse to just sort of reduce um, things down to a message and a worldview, um, I think is, is potentially flirting with that, yeah, that heresy of paraphrase. And I think mm -hmm. a better posture. So I think some people, their posture towards a movie, some believers, is to sort of hyperanalyze it. So they kind of go in and sort of constantly thinking, you know, what is the worldview expressed here and what are the values and so on and so on. Those are all valuable questions. But I, I think if, as much as possible, if we can go into a film with our, our guard down to some extent, I mean, responsibly, you know, I think there's some discernment required, but we can responsibly let our guard down. Um, just like we're, you know, entering into a conversation and just um, being willing to listen and watch and just... Um, receive the, the film on its own terms and experience yeah. it. Um, and then, you know, um, maybe after the fact, we might dissect it a bit more. But I think, first of all, we just kind of enter it, into it and experience it. I think that that's kind of the the ideal posture to take towards watching a movie. Yeah, that's that's excellent and, and really helpful. Um, because, yeah, we, we can go into it in one way or the other. We can go into it 
overly on guard and overanalyzing it and missing out on the experience of the art. Uh, on the other hand, we can go into it with our guard completely down and just wanting to be mindlessly entertained. And, uh, you know, I, I think sometimes there's, uh, within, like you said, within reason, there's times to be just entertained. Nothing yeah. wrong with that. Um, totally. But once again, uh, there's times whenever we could step into something to be entertained uh, with our guard too down to where we, we kind of, especially in our, in our culture today, um, you know, end up absorbing, you know, more, more, uh, vulgarity and brutishness than, than we ought. Yeah. Um, yeah. It doesn't have to be yeah. an either or, you know, it's, um, yeah. we're not turning off our brains. Um, yeah. but we're, we want to, I think you mentioned, you know, um, using, bringing our whole self to, to what we're doing. And I think that that's what I'm talking about too. Yeah. Why do you think that it is that, um, that we seem to have many Christians today who, who struggle to appreciate art as art or, um, or, or, or see it as something that we can um, enjoy as a part of our discipleship and Christian life? Yeah. Um, you know, there are obviously all sorts of different flavors of Christian. And, and um, so there are plenty of, plenty of believers out there who are, um, fully engaged with the arts and, and um, popular culture and that kind of thing. And there are some who maybe uh, uh, need to dial that back. I, I don't know. Um, but, but for those that have been reticent um, to do so, um, I think it sometimes comes from um, kind of, um, yeah, kind of a dualism, you know, a sort of um, an elevation of the spiritual over the physical Mm -hmm. um, which has its roots right back in Platonic Greco-Roman thought where yeah. um, the sort of body and anything bodily and physical is kind of at best um, unimportant and at worst evil. Um, and then the elevation of, of anything spiritual. And so we can end up, you know, that sort of thinking kind of um, has woven its way throughout Christian thought through the last couple of millennia at different times. Um, but I don't think it's really biblical. I don't think it's a a Hebrew um, or a scriptural way of thinking about um, reality where God created everything and created it and pronounced it all very good. But there's a temptation to slice up life into things that are spiritual and therefore important and things that are unspiritual or physical and therefore unimportant or even um, bad in some way. They're maybe a distraction or, or um, sinful and so um, there are some people that have elements, or it might be subtle, but there are elements of that in their thinking that maybe um, lead them away from wanting to engage with the arts. Um, and that also that, you know, you mentioned that phrase of brain on a stick. And, um, and I suppose I, I really like that. I think it's a good phrase. You know, Jamie Smith or James K. Smith, as he's often known, has termed this yeah, very similar that's from idea him. of the bubble. Oh right! Yeah, I, don't, okay, I, don't, cool. I don't want to take credit. That's from that's from uh, James Smith. Well, I was just going to say, Jamie Smith has um, talked about the bobblehead view of, um, which is the same idea, you know, basically a brain on a stick, and yeah. um, and and so I think when we think of, you know, Christian uh, living and discipleship as primarily just this intellectual thing, and that God really doesn't care about the body; it's just about the brain. Then you know, we might not think that something engaging with the arts, engaging with movies has any real value. It's just a distraction from the real business, but I don't think that yeah. that's true. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, uh, there are certainly some, uh, exceptions to this in, um, certain different denominations and, um, and maybe some more historic churches. But whenever I think about just the, uh, architecture of many of our churches today, there doesn't seem to be an appreciation of of art as something that can be glorifying to God or revealing of who God is, you know. So I think even in our in our in our churches and discipleship and in our worship, we don't um, have art as something presented to people to contribute to their experience of of worshiping God. You know, we have bare kind of. Yeah, I mean, they, they look like, you know, auditoriums, which no, no, nothing mm. against that. Yeah. Uh, you know, versus the place that, that art had in, in the more historic traditions of mm. Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my, um, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I, I was just thinking of like, you know, in the Reformation, 
uh, whenever different different streams, not all of them, but different streams of the Reformation sort of overreacted to the uh, iconog icon iconography. Did I say that yeah. right? Yeah, you <laughs> of, uh, of the Catholic Church by uh, removing all art in mm. any images, you know, mm-hmm. from from worship because they're afraid of it uh, kind of going into that that idolatrous direction. And I think that there's certainly even a strain of that in some of our Protestant traditions today. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And I didn't mention that before, but that is a major reason why um, we Protestants have generally uh, avoided any kind of image-based art. So we've We've kind of been we've been okay with music and we've been okay with literature. I mean, you know, there's complexities there too. But um, but yeah, visual art. There's often been a lot of suspicion. I don't know that there's a lot of that today, but we live with the hangover of it. We don't have a yeah. great, um, like you said, it's in our in our churches or it's it's not in our churches. More to the point, you know. Um, but that history, that reticence, is is visible in our churches, and it's it's also visible in. Um, you know, I would say probably the lack of really great Christian filmmakers. Um, I mean, there are some, and, and they're more emerging. Um, but, you know, historically, the, the great filmmakers have not been, you know, um, sort of uh, people that we would perhaps identify as um, as believers. Um, although, you know, that's complex too. But, um, you know, going back to your point about architecture, um my doctoral supervisor, Murray Ray, is um, that's one of his areas of specialization. And I remember in a, in a, in a lecture he was talking about uh, a little while ago, he talked about the community center model of church architecture, which is really just talking about the auditorium approach, the auditorium model, mm-hmm. and, and sort of challenging that, you know, it's a bit utilitarian. And um, after that, I was kind of inspired to like, so I got invited by the building committee at my church to come and talk to them, just give a little devotion. They didn't really have any kind of topic that they wanted me to talk about. But I really went into some of this stuff and just sort of said like, hey, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't know that I used that quite as deep into that sort of the anthropology, the brain on a stick sort of idea, mm-hmm. but sort of saying that like, you know, we are these um, bodily, physical, imaginative, um, sensory creatures. And so part of how we grow and are formed is not just through, yeah, just through the, the sort of intellectual cognitive stuff that we get inside, uh, you know, typically inside a church building, like the sermon, but actually the bu- building itself might actually be part of that formation. And so I was encouraged because that the building committee from that um that talk and that conversation that came from that really took that to heart and started thinking a little bit about, you know, so they built a new, um, not a wing, but a new part of the building. And they really thought, gave some thought into how to create a space that might be, um, yeah, like meaningful and formative in its own little way. Now it's no cathedral. Um, and one of the great things of course, is that we can worship in a shack or out in the open and and that's cool too. Yeah, yeah. But, but there's just something to be said for, you know, we are these um, whole creatures who who respond to spaces and, yeah, arts and aesthetics. Yeah. So you, you talked about uh, Christian filmmakers, and so I'll, I'll propose this to you. The greatest Christian film ever made, okay, agree or disagree, Shawshank Redemption. I disagree, but I don't. I don't. <laughs> I don't think it's terrible. Um, in fact, I, I know a lot of people who possibly would agree with you, or at least um, would it would be up there for them. So I mentioned um, Rob Johnston. So Rob Johnston uh, is a theology and film professor from Fuller, sort of a professor emeritus these days, um, mm-hmm. and he's been one of the trailblazers in this field. And um, certainly, he's written a bit about Shawshank Redemption. Um, okay. Yeah, so I think that that's pretty uh, up there for a lot of people. Um, but, you know, it's going to be different for different people. But at the same time, I think part of really what my project here is about was looking at films that do actually seem to be uh, resonant and maybe even revelatory for a, a range of people, you know. There could yeah. be idiosyncratic kinds of experiences that we have where you watch um, some, you know, goofy film and, and it speaks to you in a way that feels like maybe even God is speaking to you through it. Um, yeah. God can use anything, but, um, 
but there are certain films that seem to do it more than others and that's partly what I'm sort of drilling into in this book is like going are, are there things that we can identify about this film or these films that that seem to create or um, invite the audience into a space where they might be more receptive to God's um, voice now yeah. I'm not saying that um, that we can you know filmmakers can craft a film that creates revelation because then it wouldn't be revelation. Revelation is is God's doing. Um, mm. God is the primary agent of revelation. But they might be able to craft a film that invites audiences into a space where they're better able to receive God's revelation. Um, and I think Shawshank Redemption for a lot of people is that. And um, yeah, certainly a great film. Yeah. 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 So in looking over, and I don't know if I'd say it's the greatest Christian film. I was just throwing it out there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it definitely one of my favorites. Just phenomenal, phenomenal yeah. movie. Um, yeah. it, it, deeply moving. Um, yeah. So you, you, I was looking over your uh, appendix of movies referenced in uh, in the back of the book, and you know, like I said before, I'm not an really like an art movie guy, and so I only recognized maybe four or five of the titles mm. and have seen maybe two and a half. Mm. Um, I, I saw silence was on there and mm-hmm. I, I'm a huge Scorsese fan. Mm. And so, uh, I, I had read the book silence in, uh, yeah. anticipation of the movie coming out and, uh, and loved that one. Uh, mm. I think you had, a, you had a Pixar movie on there. If I remember right, yeah, Inside Out, yeah, Inside Out. Okay, so I'd yeah. seen that one, and then I watched half. Ooh, I don't know if I could say half. Uh, maybe the thir- first thirty or forty-five minutes of Tree of Life by uh, you, you, Terrence Malick. You weren't feeling it. Yeah, I turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> well, check it out, man. If I just put my camera. You can see that I've got the Tree of Life poster in my background <laughs> on my wall. <laughs> um, I, it, I I could only handle so much whispering. And yeah, then, yeah. and then, whenever he went into the like twenty minute montage of just like shots of outer space, I had yeah, to turn yeah. it off. I was like, I well, am not I, following I, this I, at all. That his the the most recent one, I think it was most recent, um, a hidden life. life. Yeah, that one I that one I loved, which surprised Ooh. me because after that, I thought Terrence Malick just wasn't for me. Yeah, I yeah, loved yeah. a hidden life. Thought that one was great. Um, a lot of whispering yeah. again. He must. He's got a thing with. <laughs> <laughs> just wanting you to turn the sound all the way up. Yeah, yeah, you definitely got a style. I, you know, I, um, I saw the Tree of Life when I was living in Pasadena, and it was at this um, sort of uh, second-run theater, two-dollar sh- showing sort of um, cinema. And um, about, yeah, about twenty minutes in, um, like you, a bunch of people just like walked out, <laughs> and I was sitting there just enthralled. I just. To me, it was one of these films. It was one of Uh these films that had this, and but yeah, it's um, you know each to their own. And um, so, so take take Tree of Life because what I wanted to get to was you know sharing and using those movies, you know, giving us examples of what you're talking about and wanting to get across in the book of experiencing the revelation of God in film. So yeah, so if Tree of Life was one of those for you, you know, share with us some examples of what you're uh, wanting to help communicate through the book. Yeah, so I take um, a few films, and by the way, when I mention like for the like, like the Pixar example, um, mm-hmm. anytime I mention a film, I put it in the appendix. So it doesn't mean I've I've gone into into depth on it. So I didn't go in depth on Inside Out, although uh, one of my friends cut a Callaway, cut a Callaway, sorry, um, who's also from Fuller and an expert in this area, he um, he's written a bit about Inside Out. So his book Transcending. Um, sorry, Scoring Transcendence. Um, apologies, Cutter. I'm kind of getting things garbled here. Um, his book, Scoring Transcendence, he talks at length and dissects a bit um, the film Up, a Pixar mm. film. Um, and I love that. Oh, because, I love that one. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I love Pixar films. And I love that um, he's, yeah, he's being able to take really popular movies and um, come at them theologically. And I, I intended to do more of that in this project. Like I mentioned earlier, there are some kind of complicated reasons why that didn't end up happening so much. But, um, and maybe I'll come to that in a moment. It's probably worth mentioning. But um, when it comes to, yeah, a film like Tree of Life, so um, the films that I mostly focus on are 
uh, in one chapter, a Danish film called Oad and a kind of a sort of a quasi remake of it called Silent Light. And then 2001, A Space Odyssey and then Magnolia. But I also do a bit on Tree of Life and a few other films. Um, and what I'm trying to convey, I'm trying to zero in on particular visual aspects of those films and talk about how they might be evoking or inviting um, certain kinds of emotional responses that draw our attention to aspects of reality where God is speaking. So um, in Silent Light and Oad, I talk about the way that the films use light and that how light in those films um, elicits a feeling of wonder. And wonder is something that opens us up and, and has us contemplating higher orders of reality. Is there a God out there? That kind of thing. Mm. Um, when I look at 2001, I look at what's the, the fancy term is um, mise-en-scene, um, but it is the, the, how an image is composed, basically, um, and how the director, Stanley Kubrick, uses um, planets and, and human bodies in the frame to create a sense of awe. And then I talk a little bit about how awe... Um, what theologians have said about awe and what um, psychologists have said about awe and how awe um, also um, invites us into a space that we might be more open to the possibility of God or the reality of God. And then finally with Magnolia, I talk about its editing and how it, the, um, the filmmaker P.T. Anderson uses um, disparate storylines and, and weaves them together with all sorts of creative editing to create a sense that um, of human connection and um, human oneness or connectedness and how we may as an audience even feel like a part of that um, connectedness. And that our, um, our connectedness as humans is a reflection of the Trinitarian nature of God, that God is a, a community within the Godhead. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to draw connections between how films are crafted visually and how that might contribute to an experience of God or can, or invite audiences into a space where they might be able to experience God a, a little more. So that's the kind of thing I'm doing. And Tree of Life, I think, just does it in a lot of different ways. Um, so I use Tree of Life um, without going into a lot of depth. I use it, for example, in my conclusion as a way of sort of showing how you know, a film can do this in a lot of different ways. Um, but, you know, it's not for everyone. Everyone has their tastes and what um, what resonates and and what God might use to speak to somebody um, is going to vary. And, and, you know, there are some people for whom Tree of Life does it and there are some people for whom it's Shawshank Redemption and there's some people for whom it might be, um, it could be a Marvel film. It could be any of these things, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But I have my own kind of taste. Now, I'm not... I'm not as snobby as I probably am sounding. Um, yeah, I kind of appreciate some of the more artsy stuff, but I also write on board with a lot of mainstream things. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why not much of that made it into this book. Um, because I was focusing on image, one of the things I discovered, and um, there's a, a scholar, Richard Ignell, who wrote a little bit about this um, that was really helpful to me, is one of the things I discovered is that if we want to look at how image itself really invites a kind of um, particular kinds of emotional responses from an audience, then um, the, the images are a kind of a funny thing because they tend to be um, subservient to, to story or narrative when you have a strong plot. And most mainstream cinema, most Hollywood films have a very strong kind of plot. And that means that the role that image plays is often kind of secondary. It serves the plot. Mm. But in a movie like Tree of Life, plot is pretty minimal and sparse, and you're not even necessarily sure what's going on some of the time. And that kind of allows images to come to the fore, and we engage with images differently um, and more in a more contemplative kind of way um, in those kind of films. So... Yeah. Yeah, so that's um, I, I went in hoping that I'd have a range of like very popular and mainstream films and artsy films, but as I explored it, I found that the films that really lean on image to do a lot of the emotional heavy lifting um, are often the kind of yeah those sort of elitist kind of films. So yeah. I would love somebody to do something like kind of write a book that's kind of like mine, but like focusing on like really mainstream kind of cinema. Mm -hmm. But I just found that that was a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I think you you just perfectly explained why I've always had a hard time um, 
really enjoying some of the more uh, artsy films, particularly like Terrence Malick, and maybe why like, I enjoyed A Hidden Life more than The Tree of Life, because A Hidden Life, even though there wasn't uh, a lot of narrative, there was uh, somewhat of a, I, I guess, I guess a stronger storyline with you waiting for uh, yeah. the decision that the, I can't remember the main character's name, that the protagonist was going to have to make. Another one that I think of is, um, and this would be for sure one of my all-time favorite movies, would be uh, Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Mm. And a movie which, you know, in my opinion, though I don't think anyone would call it an art film, was one of the most beautiful movies I feel like I ever watched. Mm. Um, not extremely yeah. narrative-driven, um, mm. but does have a, a very strong storyline that is kind of moving. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Moving the more. Yeah, the movie absolutely. Along. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, narrative is powerful. Narrative is important. Narrative also lends itself to analysis and theological analysis. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but yeah, some, and, and that probably the diet of film that most of us consume, myself included, uh, primarily narrative driven sorts of um, films. But there are, Films that are less interested in telling a strong or coherent or very, um, yeah, like a very, um, I don't know, a narrative-driven kind of um, film mm -hmm. and are trying to do stuff that's a bit more aesthetic. And it was just easier in a way to analyze the visual elements of those films and the effect of those um, in those kind of, yeah, less narrative-driven films. But certainly that's a big part of taste. And, and that's probably... Uh, that could be one of the major um, differences between what we might call art film and, and mainstream cinema. Um, mm. Because, yeah, um, some art films very narrative-driven, but um, they often are either less narrative-driven or they mess with our kind of narrative expectations. Mainstream cinema tends to um, have a kind of, I wouldn't say a formula, but a bit more of a... Um, yeah, narrative emphasis and a narrative um, kind of pattern, if you like, mm -hmm. um, that we understand and expect and it is satisfying. Um, and sometimes art film frustrates that kind of feeling of satisfaction that we often look for. Um, yeah. And that can, that can be frustrating, yeah. But it's a little bit like an acquired taste. I mean, you know, there are, I, I saw, one of the fun, funny things about acquired tastes is that they often end up being our favorite, you know, like... Mm. Um, I'm not a wine drinker, but people that drink wine, you know, um, they just love wine. But I think most people would say it is an acquired taste. You don't just sort of start loving alcohol right out, out the gate. Um, and and yet that, that would be far preferable to them than soda, you know. Mm. And so I think um, once you develop a bit of a taste for these other kinds of films, it, you know, sometimes that can become a preference. And that's why we probably all have that weird artsy friend who – would rather go see Tree of Life than um, than uh, Maverick, to Top Gun Maverick, yeah. or something. Like that. Yeah, yeah. I've got like six or seven of those friends, so this <laughs> this episode is dedicated to them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but let's say that um, yeah, you're, you're talking to someone like me or or one of our listeners who who's like me and um, maybe wants to start to expand and refine their taste. Um, and like you said before, like there's it's okay to have different tastes, of course. But but someone's saying, you know, but I want to uh, I want to expand it some more and, and, and start to enjoy movies um, for more and for more than just cheap entertainment and and as works of art. Mm. Do you offer a framework or or some steps to teach people to begin to enjoy uh, movies as works of art better? That's a good question. And I'm not sure I do, really. Um, I mean, my my first response um, more initial thought when you were asking that question was just to far more practical, which was just that um, there's a list of um, top 100 spiritually infect, inflicted films um, that have been compiled by the arts and faith uh, community, which is an online community of um, Christian artists and art lovers. Um, and every few years they refine their list of 100 films um, and What's the name of the yeah, group again? Uh, Arts and Faith. Okay, and they I'll include that in the show notes. Yeah, and they're connected to um, Image Journal, which is a Christian arts journal. Okay. Um, and all the films that I 
focus on, um, or yeah, kind of uh, really focus on, not, not ones that I mentioned in passing, but ones that are a special emphasis in my book have come from that list because I wanted, I wanted to avoid picking films that were just personal favorites and actually pick ones that seem to resonate with a wide variety of people. But they, these films are, um, yeah, probably do skew away from mainstream. There are some that are very mainstream and very Hollywood, but there are a lot, you know, that are from, they're from all over the world and they're from throughout cinema history and, and, drawn of various ranges of styles but they're all films that that community of people of, of film buffs have really said um, these are religiously resonant in some kind of way mm. um, and so I think that that would be a good place to start is just start looking at that and start picking out the ones that you think look promising and um, and see how you get on but in terms of a framework I don't really have much of a framework except that I would just return to that posture that I, I mentioned earlier which is just to um, to let to let your guard down a little bit. Um, sometimes, if you're going in to analyze it in terms of worldview and that kind of thing, um, which you know a lot of Christians, especially intellectually wired Christians, often do approach film that way. Um, you might again be frustrated because um, the films won't don't won't be sort of necessarily presenting their worldview on a on a plate for you to. Um, analyze um i think it's better with these ones to go in and and just kind of be open to the experience and then ask yourself what was my experience did i was that a positive experience did i enjoy it um did i not and then you start thinking a little bit about why and what it might be saying and so on and so um yeah i think that that's kind of the posture i'd recommend the other thing is i do think probably people that appreciate um, some of these more art house kind of movies are probably appreciating them both as entertainment and as as pieces of um, art in the sense that they're attuned to how they're crafted. Um, and so if you're, again, you don't necessarily have to be sitting there dissecting it as you go, but if upon reflection you think a little bit about, you know, you mentioned Dunkirk and, you know, Christopher Nolan is somebody who works in the kind of mainstream space, but does stuff that's really interesting um, and probably appeals to a wide range of film fans. Um, and so, you know, you've obviously had that ability to look at a film and kind of go, that was beautifully shot. And, and you start thinking a little bit about how it was shot. So I think that often that's how people appreciate more art cinema is just that it's, um, yeah, they're attuned to not just the entertainment, but also the craft of film. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it it might also mean just being more intentional with what we choose to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that that list that I mentioned, the Arts and Faith Top 100, if you just Google Arts and Faith Top 100 Films, it will come up. Um, and uh, that's a good place to start with some possibilities. Yeah. Well, before we go, uh, what do you hope that readers of your book or those who listen to this episode take away from this conversation and what your yeah. message is. There's a few different things. I think for anyone out there who's a filmmaker or an artist, um, I'd love them to this to be helpful to them to think about um, not only the kind of message that they're trying to get through through their piece of their, their form of art or their film, but also the kind of experience that they might be trying to invite from the audience and how those two could perhaps work in harmony, the, the message and the experience. Um, none of us can manufacture revelation, but we maybe um, skilled artists can perhaps yeah, invite audiences into a space where they might be more open to encountering God. Um, so that'd be one thing. I think for um, those who are just uh, movie watchers, um, I guess I would encourage them to think a little bit about, like, have you ever had experiences where you feel like God has spoken to you or been more real to you through a film um, or through the arts in general? But even wider than that, just in terms of um, our our lives as disciples, I think um, general revelation is a bit undervalued. Um, and I think you know the example of Paul is a really good one. You know, when he when he met the pagans, he his starting point with them was not the Bible; it was their experiences of God 
where they've already had a revelation of God that might already have been in their lives that they haven't even noticed. Yeah. And so I personally think that that's a good starting point with a lot of people is, you know, you might, you will want to get to Jesus eventually, but if we're as a, as believers, we're able to start and identify where God is and the spirit of God is already working in the culture and in people's lives and be able to identify those. I think that that's a really good starting point for dialogue in a, uh, culture where that is often, you know, people describe themselves as spiritual, but not religious. And that would mean, I think for a lot of people, they're not particularly interested or um, don't particularly respect maybe what the Bible has to say, um, but are open to the possibility that God is real and that God may even be revealing himself to them. So mm. those are some sort of takeaways, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, man, I really enjoy this conversation and uh, it's been helpful for me to just think through, you know, the way that I view movies and and appreciate them. And so, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it and I appreciate it. Appreciate the work you're doing. Uh, The book we talked about today is called uh, Seeing is Believing. For those of you guys who are interested in it, I'll have it linked in the show notes so you can go and pick up your copy and uh, read it, share with friends and um, and tell others about it. Uh, Richard, just want to thank you so much for joining us today here on Filter. Cool. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Aaron. Kakitiano. See you later from New Zealand. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the